I know that uh, Andrew's already addressed and recognized our mothers, but it is Mother's Day, and we're so glad to see all of our mothers, and uh, it's uh, such a joy and an honor to have so many family members visiting with us today and being with your family or just visiting here at Eastside, and uh, we're thrilled. Uh, mothers are kind of important. Uh, and we are excited to recognize that and thankful to be able to recognize that. Um, and I love these songs that were sung today. And uh, I thank God for a mother that I could see Jesus in. But you know, not only did I see Jesus in my mother and my dad, but one thing that mother kind of uh, opened my eyes to was was songs and singing. When I was young, my mother would sing all kinds of songs to me. She would sing hymns and she would sing all the children's songs from memory. It was from my mother that I developed kind of a, a wide array of appreciation for different music, such as Fats Domino and Ray Price and many that my mother would enjoy listening to, and of course, the greatest, Elvis. Thank you very much. As I grew older, the kinds of songs changed from country and western to rock and roll, from southern gospel to contemporary Christian, from hip hop and rap to rhythm and blues and every single thing in between. Some people have even tried to determine the greatest songs from every genre, whether it is Amazing Grace, He Stopped Loving Her Today, or Like a Rolling Stone, everyone has their opinion. But there is one song that rises above them all. You see, there's a song of God by Moses, a song of God and His glory. A song that God told Moses to write down literally on his deathbed. And so I challenge you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 32 today at a song for the ages. A song for the ages. And many of you may say, well, it's Mother's Day. Why are you not preaching on mothers? If it's the gospel, it's about mothers. It just happens to be about dads and children and grandparents and uncles and cousins. And the gospel is always applicable. Amen. And we have been following through our series starting in January on forward. That's our word, not just for 2021, but as we look out into the future, God has told us not to be still, not to back up, but to move forward. And we're narrowing it down. We're right at the end. You see, we have seen it from Egypt, standing on the Red Sea, through on dry ground, throughout 40 years of wilderness, through spies who were faithful and spies who were afraid. We have seen worship through the tabernacle and we have seen rejection through the worship of a golden calf. We have seen hot and cold in their spiritual nature. But God tells Moses as he takes him up to Mount Nebo and he says, you're going to die there. But I'm going to write, I want you to write a song. And this song will be throughout the ages. 
a song for all to sing. Now it's speaking expressly in this text about the nation of Israel. But I do not think it's a stretch to see it because we'll read in a little bit. It's literally mentioned in the last book of the Bible. In the last days, it will be sung and not even on earth, but in heaven. First of all, I want you to notice with me as God ordered Moses to write this song, he said in Deuteronomy 31, verse 12, gather the people together, men and women, and what makes women mothers? Their little ones. Gather them together and the stranger who is within your gates that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law. Can I just stop and punch in right here? If you teach your kid to throw the greatest fastball and you teach them trigonometry by the time they're 12 and you don't teach them how to live for Jesus, you have failed. You have failed. You have failed miserably. The greatest thing a, God, a mother could ever do is be a godly mother who by their example, what we heard sung today, that one day, just as Moses was about to cross over, not into this promised land, but to that one, they looked back and they could say, I saw God in him. Mother's the greatest testimony anyone could stand and say about you. Not that you're a great cook or kept a clean house, but they could see Jesus in you. You see, he, said, he tells us very carefully to teach it to the little ones that they may hear, that they may learn to fear the Lord and to observe all the words of this law. And that their children who have not known it why do we have to do Bible school? Because kids don't know it. They don't know the truth. We must be teaching them that they may know, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. He said in verse 19, Now therefore write down this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. My friends, this was no nursery rhyme. When I have brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey, of which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat, oh, how blessed we are in America. Then they will turn to other gods and serve them. What a sad, sad epitaph. And they will provoke me and break my covenant. Then it shall be when many evils and troubles have come upon them that this song will testify against them as a witness. For it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants. For I know the inclination of their behavior today, even before I have brought them to the land of which I swore to give them. He said, I'm going to bless them in a land of milk and honey, but I know the milk and honey will not be enough. They will worship the gods 
of the people. They will be so self-sufficient they think they no longer need me. This song is to remind them who God is. You see, this song serves as a witness and a warning a timeless presentation of who God is and why we must follow him as a person, as a parent, and as a church. We must remember who God is. Our children need to learn who God is. Their lives and their future depend on it. So let me ask you, what song are you singing There's four verses to this song throughout chapter 32, beginning in verse 1 through verse 43, and we'll not read all of them today. But I challenge you, maybe even before the sun sets, and especially moms, to sit down and read chapter 32, 1 through 43. On the song of Moses, this song for the ages, it's comprised of four verses. First of all, God is great. Second verse, God is good. Now right now in your head, you just sang, let us thank him for our food. Didn't you? I did. God is great, number one. Second verse, God is good. Number three, God is faithful. Number four, God is the first and final authority. Let's begin by looking at And in our hearts singing unto the Lord, let us see verse 1. God is great. It's describing his character. Who is God? Who is this God we talk about? Is it a God way up somewhere that can't be touched? Is he a God that multiplies himself through the animals and through the trees, a pantheistic or a panentheistic God? Is he a three-headed God? Who is God? We see the very character of God. He said in verse 1, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord. He's basically giving us a picture of opening our heart to the richness and fullness of his word. To sink down deep. That soaking rain that brings nutrition. He said, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of truth. And without injustice, righteous and upright is he. That's who God is. But let's let's delve a little deeper into this first verse. The first stanza, God is great. He describes him here in this verse 4. He said, he is the rock. Now, if you'll look in your Bible... That rock is capitalized. That's a big R. Later on in this chapter, it'll be a small R referring to the things of this world. We've got to decide whether we're playing around with the lively stones of this world or we basing our existence 
on the rock of Christ Jesus. He is the rock. What does that even mean? He is the rock. It literally means, number one, he's strong. Rocks are very interesting things. If you've ever been to Stone Mountain and seen that great outcropping or you've been through the Badlands and seen Devil's Tower or some of those places, to go through Palestine, through Israel and see all the rocks and see what they've done with those rocks and those rocks can be carved and many of you have granite countertops, our headstones made out of marble. There are many things that can be done, but one thing we can all agree, they're strong. It's always interesting and intriguing and overwhelming to go to Israel and look at these, these great stones that were carved to set up the temple or to make the walls or to build things of antiquity. And they have stood the test of time. Why? Because they're strong. We've got to understand this strength of him being the rock is safety for those who are trusting him. He tells us he's our rock and refuge, right? He is the cleft of the rock. We go to him in times of trouble. I don't know about you, but I need that strength. Especially when I think I'm strong. I love the context where Paul is overwhelmed by the thorn in the flesh and he's pray, praying, please God, please, please, three times, I beg of you, remove this thorn. And he said, my strength, my strength will become very evident. It will overwhelm you. My strength is perfected in your weakness. For when you're weak, then am I strong? You see, a lot of us question God, why is these ha things happening to me? Sometimes God has to clear the chaff. They ha he has to clear those things that have given us a false idea that we can make it through life on our own. We can figure it out. We can be strong enough physically, mentally, emotionally that it doesn't matter. And he has to break us to make us. You see, he is the rock. When all else fails, he is strong. You see, he's safety for the trusting, but he's crushing to those in rebellion. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the chief cornerstone, but to those who reject him, he'll fall on them and crush them. He is God. And God is not this fairy tale God of, of being mealy mouth, weak need, and little soft hands, but he's a mighty God. He is the God of all ages who created the universe, spoke them into existence, and there is no power in heaven or on earth that can challenge that. And can I interest you with the thought, that's our God? That's our God? The same God that Moses was writing about is the same God we serve today. He has not forgotten us. He has not just completely out of hand rejected us. And he's surely not lost control. He's God. And we're not. A rock that is immovable. See, nothing moves him. You know, we can be rattled at the least little thing. And I don't know about you, it's when I least expect it. 
It's when I think I've got everything kind of tied down and things are good and something will just come out of nowhere and rattle me to my core. That just changes the day, it changes the mood, it changes the emotions, it changes everything. But I want you to understand that God, our rock, is immovable. Nothing moves him. Emotion, culture, time, nothing, nothing, nothing has ever pried him from his throne in glory. He's the same God of the dark ages. He's the same God in the days of Constantine and Charlemagne and Martin Luther and John Wycliffe and the Wesley brothers the Apostle Paul and St. Augustine. He's the same God here at Eastside today because he's immovable. He's enduring. I mean, don't you, it, it, I'm a t-shirt guy. I, I'm, I'm, if you come by the office during the week, I'm here. Chances are, especially from now until it gets cold, You'll probably see me in some kind of t-shirt and a pair of shorts. Y'all do it on Sunday. I do it all during the week, which is fine. That's my deal. There's nothing worse than having a favorite t-shirt about the time you really get it broke in and gets a big hole in it. I, I, I can't make myself throw away my most ragged blue jeans. Because they are the absolute best. I've got some kind of little burr on this ring. And over time, putting my hands in and out of my pockets and my blue jeans, it rips them. I've got one that's ripped all the way down right. I'm still going to wear them. Because they're my favorite blue jeans of all time. But eventually, and, and I think I'll have a little prayer. And I'll thank God and I'll throw them away. And I'll stand there and stare at them a little while. And I'll have to slowly move away. Things in this world fade, don't they? The things that was your whole world 20 years ago, 30 years ago, man, if I can just get that car, if I can just get that job, if I can just do this, and if I can just get that, and it fades. Things rot. Things rust. Things break. God does it. God does it. He's the same God today as he was when you were a child. He's enduring through all ages. You see, he had Moses write this song knowing what they were going to do. If any of you are questioning your salvation, God knew what you would do after you got saved, and he still saved you if you are saved. Because Jesus died for the penalty of sin, which is death. And in Christ, those who are alive are alive forevermore, sealed into the day of redemption. Why? Because God is enduring. God is unchanging. So how is that any different? The world changes, and today we're giving a steady diet. It's like when we were kids. 
And they had whatever the worst tasting, nastiest medicine there was in, on earth was not in pill form. And they didn't even take a tablespoon. It would be like a ladle. You know, it'd be like a wood spoon. They'd pour that thing slap full and just open you up like you as an animal and just shove it down. I think it was animal medicine, probably. You'd try to hold your nose and do all those kinds of things. But it was for the best. Well, the world now tells us that right's wrong, wrong's right, up's down, black is white, white is black. And anything and everything that anybody wants to feel, be, or think is their right and their truth. I'm here to tell you there's only one truth. There's only one truth. Whether you think yourself or someone thinks themselves to be something that God did not create does not deem it so. There is one truth. There is no relativistic, pluralistic ideas of the world there. There's plenty of them. But listen, God in Malachi said, I am God, I change not. The designer of the design says, I change not. God created male and female. God created the heavens and the earth. Dark and light. Water and sky. And no matter how hard we want it to fit into our agenda, isn't it amazing how people's ideas change based on their desires? God's unchanging. And I want to give you just a heads up so you don't have to try this. God's not going to change because you talk real sweet to him and just say, well, I just believe God understands. Can I tell you one thing? God will never tell you to leave your spouse for somebody else's. And you can convince yourself God's in it. Never going to happen. Never has happened, never will happen. You cannot convince me that living in the epitome of sin, God is okay with it simply because you say, God loves me and God understands. Read Deuteronomy 32. He said in verse 4, His righteous and upright is He and that He is without injustice. That means He judges everyone exactly the same. And He's perfect. He is perfect. No mistakes. Not only is the rock, but His work is perfect. No mistakes. There's no mistakes. I don't, I don't, some of it, somebody here needs to hear this today. You think I don't look like them, I don't sound like them, I don't, I'm not as smart as them, I don't have what they have, I don't have any of this stuff. He, I want you to understand in the old good country saying, God don't make no junk. Y'all can't get with me on that. Change the slide. Look, he is perfect. His work is perfect. No mistakes. 
He's never, ever made a mistake. I can make a mistake before I ever even get out of bed. And God for all eternity has never, and we say, well, but look, God don't make a mistake. Andrew posed a question on social media. Do you believe in the Bible and why? I can tell you one thing, according to Scripture, and I could talk about 30 or 40 different authors over a period of several thousand years, and there is no contradictions. I could tell you about the thousands and thousands of artifactual finds. I could tell you of the eyewitnesses to the resurrection, what has been deemed as the greatest archaeological find in the last two to three hundred years, which is the Dead Sea Scrolls that's completely word for word backs up the Bible today. I could tell you all that, but what I know is in my heart, God's Word and His work is perfect. He makes no mistakes. I can look at every single person that I will ever see and know that person was made in the image of God. Because God doesn't make mistakes. There's no flaws in Him. If you're looking for a church to have find flaws, you found the right one. And all you got to do is start by looking up here. But as long as I stay hidden behind this cross and stay in the Word of God, your opinion of my flaws don't matter. What matters is the Lord loves me, forgives me in my flaws, does not overlook my flaws, but corrects them in me. Because in Him there is none. You're not a mistake. You're not a mistake. Stop letting the world tell you you're wrong because you stand for right. Stop it. Stop it. Today, just as we'll read probably uh, next week, we must be as Joshua, very courageous. For we're facing very uncertain times. There has not been a challenge and a charge against the church in any of our lifetimes like we're living in today. Young people, it is not wrong to live for Jesus. Stop thinking you've got to do the things of this world so you can fit in. Start standing out. You really want to be different? You wear different clothes. It's your style. You wear this so you can do this. You listen to this so you can be different. The truth is we all bite off the same rock. You want to be different? Live for Jesus. Because listen, and the fact that his work is perfect, he needs no improvement. I wouldn't say I'm a perfectionist, but when it comes to certain things, like hot rods or building a house, especially the trim work in the house, I can't stand something undone. I want, I, I, I want to get very precise. I want it to be fixed. And there's always, without fail, something that will gnaw at me for years that just wasn't done just right. Or even in our best effort, it didn't turn out. There was, the, the story goes, the lore goes, there were a couple of brothers back in the 1800s that built houses. And in building houses, they did such a great job. They were such craftsmen. Now we have wood butchers. Everything's powered, everything's cordless, everything is pneumatic, 
And so it's how fast you can turn and burn to make the next, next dollar. These guys were craftsmen and they built houses. And after a while, everybody would say, man, y'all build the greatest houses. I mean, y'all's work is spotless. Your work is perfect. I can find nothing wrong in this house. Well, it just so happened these brothers were Christians. And they got talking about it, and it became something of an irritation to them that people kept telling them this. And they said, we cannot. We cannot allow ourselves to be exalted above measure. For pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We know, we see those things, but we need to make it evident that we mess up all the time. And so, and I worked on some of these houses. I have, I don't know it. I don't know that it was them that built it. I can't even begin to think that that was really the thing. But it kind of caught on. And some of you may have experienced this. But on the old time porches where it would have uh, balusters or pickets, the little wood spindles around the porches where the handrail is, all of them would be, you know, narrow to the widest point on the bottom. They'd be turned or whatever. But on one there may be 300 pickets on that porch, but one of them, the last one, they would turn it upside down. And they would nail it in like that. So that when they stood out, it would be obvious there was something they did wrong. All the other things they could see, but the other people would just praise them, oh, it's just perfect. But they did it to remind them we mess up all the time and we want them to see it. I want you to understand, God has never, never, ever, not once messed up. You can't improve on it. But the third aspect of God being great is His way is truth. We need a big dose of it. Like that medicine I was talking about, we need a big dose of truth in this world today. You're not doing anybody a favor by not being truthful to them. Now, when I say that, I don't mean just rear back and let them have it because you're tough and everybody ought to know what you think. I'm going to tell you something. They don't care what you think. So I'm going to tell them anyway, good. Then you can both be mad. The truth is that the truth is exclusive to God. And the only time we're completely and absolutely without error is when we speak his truth in love. In love. In love. Y'all with me on that? Speak the truth in love. Not because you want to just beat somebody over the head. You see, his way is truth. This is his character. It's without error. I don't care what the world has done. They have tried for years. They've tried to burn it. They've tried to dismiss it. They have tried to upend it. But the truth is God's word has stood the test of time. And it is without error. It's without iniquity. His truth is without iniquity. Look at verse 4. A God of truth and Without injustice, righteous and upright is he. He is without iniquity. There is no sin. There's not even a, a hint of the smell of sin. He is the very essence of truth. He doesn't just tell the truth. When he speaks, it is the truth. Get this. His truth is without prejudice. 
Now, that's not necessarily speaking about race. That's speaking about individual sin. That he doesn't dismiss some and judge others. God judges all sin, for if he didn't, he can't be God. But God is one without prejudice. He is not a respecter of persons. God loves you, but God will judge you, for he is God. He's without prejudice. He's going to be even and right in all of his measurement. And the world says, how can you worship such a mean God? Your God, you know, kills people and your God, I want to tell you something. God has no malice. It doesn't bless God's heart. He doesn't grin and snicker like a villain in the Marvel comics when he has to rain down judgment. Just for an example, and he mentions Sodom and Gomorrah in this chapter or in this whole context. Did he not give them a chance through Lot's prayer? Did he? For 50, for 40, for 30? Did God not give them a chance? You see, God... It's not the Lord's will that any perish, but that all should come to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. The truth is, God did not create man to sin. God created man to worship and fellowship with him. But man in his free will chose to reject God and in that brought death upon himself. Hear me today, God has never sent one person to hell. They chose to go there. Because they rejected his son. God is without malice. But notice the second verse. It's a long first verse, huh? Now the song keeps singing. It gets maybe a little shorter in verses as we go. Look in verse 5. They have corrupted themselves. They're not his children because of their blemish. A perverse and crooked generation do... Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders, your mother, and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the people's according to the numbers of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. And as an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out, its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign God with him. He made him ride in the heights of the earth that, the might, that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty stone. I want you to understand, God is not only great, in his character, but God is good in his care. 
The Bible tells us in, is it 1 Peter? Casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Hold on just a minute. So how many of us actually practice that? Or do we buy a book? Do we call somebody? Do we make a post? Or do we just simply stop, get on our face before God, and say, here's my cares, God. And God says, give them to me. Give them to me. You know why? Because he bought us. He tells us here in this context that he paid for them, that Israel was his people. And I'm here to tell you, those who are saved in Jesus Christ, the church has been bought and paid for. He said in verse 6, Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? He bought us. But then he said, next, he said, has he not made you? I want you to understand, in his care for us, not only has he made us, he took clay, breathed life into it, took a rib, made woman, and then formulated and taught them to procreate Isn't it odd? Isn't it really not odd? Isn't it factual that if the world just completely lost all restraint and there was nothing but the alphabet suit of LGBTQRSTUV and all the rest of the letters, that it would not take very long for procreation to cease? Do you think for a second it's not a ploy of Satan to once again destroy the family? He's tried it through divorce. He's tried it through abortion. And now he's trying it through the whole transgender and the whole argument that the world is pumping us full of today. But make no mistake about it. God has bought us. Lock, stock, and barrel. He made us and is making us. We're being conformed as believers into His blessed image. God's not done with you just because He saved you. Now, I've always wondered, if someone says they got saved when they were 10 years old in Sunday school or when they were 13 beside their mama's bed, but they have never lived one second of wanting to be in church, wanting to serve God, wanting to display God's goodness in their life by telling others about Jesus, I have to wonder, did the first thing actually happen or not? You say, well, it's not yours to judge. I beg to differ. God's Word teaches me that I can tell a tree by the fruit it bears. Now, can I say, yes, they're saved and know they're lost? No, I can't do that. There's days I've had to question my own salvation. You say, the preacher questions his own salvation? You think Satan don't bother preachers? You see, God is making me. Some days... He gets to the lump, the potter and the clay gets to that lump. And that lump has to be deeply rubbed out. 
Some of us feel like God is just absolutely just, just deep tissue rubbing the clumps out of our life. But you know what happens? It becomes smooth and into the most beautiful vase imaginable. He has bought us. He has made us. He is making us. And he has established us. Just like Israel, God has ordained the church in his son. Israel, the chosen nation, and, and the church of the living God today is not the same thing. I'm not saying that. Don't say that I did. But there are some similitudes here, some things that we can draw from this story. And we can see just as God established Israel, when he told Jacob, I'll change your name, and your children shall be a great nation. We can back up and see the son of promise God gave Abraham. We can see God calling Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant and promising it. We can see today God has established us. You know, we can look at a cornerstone on a building and it'll have the names of the board of directors or the building committee or whoever and it'll have established and have the number of that establishment. That date written upon it. But I've got news for you. The date of the church of the living God has no date for it was established in eternity in the heart and mind of God. I don't know about you, but that encourages me. When God tells us that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, he wasn't talking about Peter. He was talking about Jesus. Third verse, God is faithful. Aren't you glad God's faithful? Sometimes I'm not faithful. Not faithful to him. Not faithful to myself. I don't eat right. Don't exercise. Don't get the right sleep. Don't read my Bible like I should. Don't pray like I should. There are so many times in my life that I am unfaithful to God. God's never been unfaithful. He is faithful in his correction. Look in verse 15. That's going to get pretty heavy right here. He said, Jeshurun, which is a, a title for Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat. You grew thick. You are obese. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know. To new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. The rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. And when the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. He tells us in Hebrews, he said, do not be as those that lived in the day of the great provocation. They provoke God unto wrath. You see, he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. 
But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. Number one, God is faithful to his word. Exodus chapter 20, and I will not take the time, but the first, the, the first commands, that first tablet, verses 2 through 5 of Exodus 20, he says, I am a jealous God. You will have no other gods before me. You will worship me. You will not take my name in vain. How many of us sitting here today have left our first love? We know better, but we've allowed the things of the world. We've allowed the period of COVID. We have allowed uh, ourselves to be distracted by the things that have crept in unawares, and we must set it right today. I still hear a few along the way say, Man, I, I'm just afraid to go to church. Well, they're not afraid to go shopping. They're not afraid to pump gas. They're not afraid to go out to eat. I'm going to tell you something. I'm afraid not to go to church. I'm afraid not to come with God's people in worship. It is time, church, because God is correcting because he is a jealous God. He, he's faithful in his wrath. You can't escape it. You ever get, tr get in trouble? Mama says, famous last words. Wait till your dad gets home. Mama, just beat me. You know, put my hand on the stove. You know, slam my hand in the door. I, you know, something. J just, just don't say that. Wait till your dad gets home. And oh, the dread and the awesome breaking of my spirit in just those words. Because in the house, mama advised the judge, but daddy was the final authority. And I'd go out, and sometimes I could even convince myself to forget about it. Daddy will forget. He'd forget my name, but he wouldn't forget that. My dad can't tell you his phone number, but he ain't forgotten the things that I did wrong. In his loving wrath, God judges us. And because God is faithful, he has to. Do y'all get that? I never understood that whole thing, son, I don't want to have to do this. You look like you're enjoying it. That was a nervous laugh. Young people don't understand that. It's going to hurt you, me worse than it hurts you. I don't know Daddy ever said it that way. I don't know that he literally believed that, but in his heart I knew it broke his heart. Because one day I became a parent, and I understood it. Well, think about our Heavenly Father who has experienced every, every form of rebellion by man against him that loves them. He is judge and he will be faithful in judging our sin. But look in verse 21 at his wonderful love. Right smack dab in Moses' song, we see us. We see us. You see, it's, it's about the time of that day in the fact that other nations around would provoke them to turn back to God, but he's also prophesying 
about the Gentile nations receiving the gospel. Look at verse 21. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I'll move them to anger by a foolish nation. God's word tells us in the New Testament that's exactly what he's done by sending Paul to the Gentiles, to the churches at Smyrna, to the church at Thyatira and Ephesus and Laodicea. But the Gentiles are no different than the Israelites for often we become lukewarm and we leave our first love. But in his wonderful love, he has provided his goodness and his greatness for each one of us. And then the fourth and final verse. God is the first and the final authority. Now, once again, it's Mother's Day. Do you ever remember? I don't know about you, but we always went to Mama first. That's just good, good sense. You just go to, I mean, dad's initial reaction, no matter what, I'm talking about all dads, is no. I don't even know how, what, I'm going to say no, and then I can back off of that. But we'd go to mom, we'd say, mom, what do you think about this? Well, I don't know, go talk to your dad. Y'all know what happened next. Because y'all did the exact same thing. Hey, Dad, I, I was talking to Mama about this. Mama said, come talk to you, and if it was all right with you, it'd be all right with her. There is no other God to talk to. What God says, God means. God is the first, the middle, and the final authority on all things. Period. See, this is his compensation. And I'm not going to read all of this ver these verses, but I do want you to look at verse 30. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? Now, I want you to understand, the third verse is about God being faithful in chastising those that belong to him that he loves. Verse 4 of this song is about God's rejection of those who never trusted him to start with. It is a rejection of the faithless. He said in verse 31, For their rock is not like our rock. Even our enemies themselves being judges, for their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of cobras. Is this not laid up in store for me, sealed up among my treasures? Hear this. Vengeance is mine. And Recompense, their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Church, believers, fret not because of evildoers. There's coming a great 
and terrible day. The minor prophets calls it the day of the Lord. It is a rejection of the faithless that has brought them here because they never trusted God. The Old Testament says that their faith, their faith in Him was accounted unto them for righteousness. The Bible tells us in the New Testament we must be born again. We must confess our sins, call on His name, and we cannot come to Him unless He's drawing us. For He first loves us. It's not up to you. If you leave here today saying, I'm awake, you just know God's not promising you tomorrow and it's not on your timetable. You remember what we said? God is not subject to time. He tells us in 2 Corinthians, today is the day of salvation. The rich fool said, I'm going to just party it up today and I'll sleep in tomorrow. God said, you're a fool. You're a fool to put off that which you have no control over. You see, it's a rejection of the faithless. There is a heaven to gain, church, but there's a hell to shun. And it's real. It's redemption for the faith field. God will redeem us, has redeemed us. He said in verse 39, Now see that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. Oh, sweet redemption. Plunged in that crimson flow that washes white as snow. Through the remission of sin, he has taken that which is worthless and made it priceless. All because of the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And then finally, rewards for the fruitful. Hear this, and we'll close. Rejoice, O Gentiles. Rejoice, O Gentiles. Who's a Gentile? All of us. We're Gentiles. He said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. And render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that he rewards those who are fruitful? I want you to understand one day, one glorious day, the saints in heaven will sing the exact song. Revelation 15.1 says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who had the victory over the beast, victory over his image, victory over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass having harps of God, they sing the song of Moses. The servant of God in the song of the Lamb saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. 
Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? Who? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. For you alone are holy. For you alone are worthy. Listen, I began by asking you this question. And I want to ask it again. What song are you singing? Are you singing a cute little ditty talking about all the goodness of this world and all that you've accomplished? Are you singing the deepness of God's goodness, His greatness, His faithfulness, and His final authority? Listen today. He loves you. He knows. He, he told Moses, he said, they're going to leave me. They're going to worship false idols. They're going to turn their eyes. He said, I know. But tell them that this will be a witness that they may remember when they sing it and come back to me. Today, you need to come back. You've heard Moses' song today. Come back to Jesus. You've never trusted him as Lord and Savior. Come to him. He stands with his arms wide open to redeem you by His precious blood. Whatever you need to do. You say, it's Mother's Day, we've got to go to lunch. I'm going to tell you something. All of eternity matters more than what time you get to lunch. This is the most important thing you can do today. Be obedient to God. Stand and come. In your prayer, sing, holy is your name. Come, church. Come, church.